we've come to a, a season in the church of, um, of Easter where the church is focused on living in the presence of the resurrected Christ. Jordan said a few moments ago that uh, there's a pattern in the New Testament after Jesus comes back from the dead. He appears to his disciples. Incidentally, it's only his disciples. He never makes appearances to people who do not already at least somewhat believe. But when he appears to his disciples, they don't recognize him. That always happens. Now, remember, he's only been dead for three days. So we don't know whether his appearance has changed or whether people are just kind of clouded by grief. But why it is they can look right at him and not recognize him, nobody knows. Uh, But then, in every instance, after he's been with them for a little bit, he reveals himself in a new way. And so part of the season that we're in, in the church right now, it's this, it's this season where disciples who have been following Jesus all this time, feeling like Jesus is invisible, like he's gone, even if he's resurrected, he's not among us, but we're praying and we're hoping that God will reveal himself to his disciples today in the way that he did back then. You see, sometimes he is amongst us and we don't know it because he doesn't look like what we think he's supposed to look like. So we don't recognize him. And one of the greatest things that can happen to us is that moment where we think, wait a second, God was with us at that moment in that conversation that night when I was, that was Christ. He was physically present in that way. Today, when we serve communion, we hope it takes on that role for us. We can just go, wait a minute, Christ is present in the body and at the table. This is another, uh, uh, another one of the seasons we're in uh, is graduation time. Uh, we know this because college church is busy this time of year with people coming in and out for graduation ceremonies. There goes my notes. Uh, and, and so people are graduating from high school like in three or four weeks from now. They're graduating from Taylor, I think, in two or three weeks from now. And so everybody's sort of thinking graduation. Uh, I got thinking about this. Graduation means something different, you know, from the student to the teacher. Two different from the student's perspective, you're just thinking, man, I'm so glad this is over with. Lots moving. I won't be together with my friends like I was these last three or four years. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life, but man, it's. But when you're a teacher, you're seeing it as a commencement. That word literally means, by the way, to begin together, to commence, is to do something together for the first time, to launch. And so the teachers are all thinking about the launching of their students and how do I release my knowledge through these, <laughs> through these students into the world. Teachers sometimes worry that the world doesn't take them seriously. There's like, they don't know how much I know. And for the most part, they don't care. The only way that they'll care is through students. So you find a few students, you pour your knowledge into those students, and then wherever they go, they carry that with them, and that's how you influence the world. But these are two different ways. Last, uh, I mean, six, eight years ago when our daughter graduated from college, uh, I had one of these speeches, you know, these dad speeches. I was like, oh, Ashley, this is going to be a great time in your life, man. Just think you're at the launch, man. You're going to go out into the world and you're going to start all these new things, a brand new career. You're going to change.
into the world. She said, Daddy, I just want a job. It's like, no, no, you don't want a job. You know, you want a career. You want a mission. You want a cause. Whose kid are you? A job? No. Two different perspectives. See? I just want to live. I got to eat. And I'm thinking, no, no, it's much bigger than this. I got thinking this passage in John uh, chapter 21, the one that we're all familiar with. It's possible to read this in two ways. You can read it as the student, which is Peter, coming back to Jesus after a massive failure three nights before when he betrayed him three times. So you think of this as kind of a do-over. This is a chance for me to get it right when Jesus asks me if I love him three times. That's what we'll do. Three times I denied him. Three times he'll say, do you love me? It's one for one, man. We're even. And that's one way. Then you can read this through the eyes of Jesus and think, wait a minute, maybe like a good teacher, he has more in mind than you imagined. So this morning, as hard as it is for some of you familiar with this story, to think of it one way, I want to try to get you to think about the same story that you know really, really well in a slightly different way. For starters, remember that if the whole night if this whole conversation with Peter is really about forgiving him for the night he betrayed him, then why doesn't anybody bring this up? That's the elephant in the room. Nobody mentions it. There's no confession. There's no apparent forgiveness. Yes, Peter, I forgive you. There's no admonition. Go and sin no more. In fact, the subject never comes up. Now, it doesn't mean that that wasn't in their minds. It just means maybe more is happening than Peter getting restored. Which raises the second thing. I started looking for ways in which Jesus was setting the breakfast that morning to say something different. Here's what I found, and then we're going to take communion like this. First, I noticed the meal changes. This is not the Last Supper. Aside from the obvious facts that this is not bread and wine, and that this is not a supper but a breakfast, uh, there's the fact that Jesus invites the disciples to bring some of what they've caught and put it next to what he's got, that seems unprecedented to me. Now, most of the time, when the host invited people over for a meal, he was making a social statement. 
Food was scarce in those days. You didn't typically waste it on people who was not your closest friends. So when Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors, now you know why that would tick the Pharisees off. They would say, how is it this guy eats with sinners and tax collectors, the worst of people, and he's at their house eating dinner? It's because he was making a social statement. It was like he was saying, yeah, that's right, and these are the kind of people I prefer. I prefer to eat with people your mama told you to avoid. By the way, I avoid people your mama told you to eat with. Now you know why when Jesus went walking down the street, saw Zacchaeus, and he said, come on down, I'm going to your house for lunch. It's on you. (laughs) He wasn't mooching. He was making a public, a social statement to people in the city who knew Zacchaeus was a tax collector. They hated him. He cheated people. So he had a reputation in the town with all these people. They knew who he was, thought poorly of him. Jesus is making a social statement. Come on down. I'm going to go to your house. You're the kind of person I prefer to be with. They would not have missed that even if Americans might. That was a statement. Now you know why the night Jesus was betrayed, he said to Judas, the one who will betray me has his hand at the table with me. He's saying is, here at the table where there is a fellowship going on, my betrayer. Jesus knew full well Judas would betray him, fed him anyway. He's making a statement. So what's happening this morning in the breakfast is Jesus, knowing that Peter has denied him, has opened the table again. Peter, I know that I know that you don't deserve this. I know that you're sure you don't deserve this. But I want you to come to the table and have a fellowship meal with me. And by the way, bring some of that fish that you caught. I mean that I caught through you. <laughs> bring that. Bring a little of what you've got. And this is, this, 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 this doesn't happen prior to this time. When I was uh, uh, a young preacher, I, I was a single. And so um, I was in this church of 21, 25 people. Uh, and we weren't good at hardly anything, um, but we were good at potlucks because it was full of like older people who've cooked their whole lives and they knew how to cook. It's so about every month or so we have a potluck where everybody bring in your favorite dish. Well, when you're single and you don't cook and you're working 70, 80 hours a week, you don't have anything to bring in. So what I'd do is I'd stop at the store on the way and get a bag of rolls <laughs> or chips or something, you know, and I'd bring them in and I'd set them on the table. And ladies did a beautiful job of taking what little I had and blending it in nicely with the rest of what they brought. So it was like feast, 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 and Steve's little rolls. <laughs> packaged Walmart specials and feast. 
This is kind of what's happening that morning. Take some of what you've caught. Now, I don't need it, but I want it. Bring it, put it next to mine. So when I'm eating yours, you'll, you'll be eating mine. Amen. This is a fellowship. Some of you this morning, when you come to the table in a few moments, you're going to feel like that. You're going to feel like you don't belong, like you don't deserve this. There's something you've done. This is not the right time for you. And I shouldn't be coming to the table this morning. No, actually what the story says is you should. Now is the time to come. Not once you've got it all figured out. You come now. The second thing that changes is the language. From everything I can tell, this is the first time that any one of the disciples has told Jesus they love him. That's peculiar. You followed him for three years. You've obeyed him, served him, admired him, feared him, worshipped him. But you've never told him, I love you. Relationships change when somebody says, I love you. It's out there. And to love someone in the Bible's sense of the word is not simply to have warm feelings for someone. It is to commit yourself to act towards someone in a way that causes that person to live well. It is to put another person's interests above your own interests. So it's more than a feeling and it's deeper than an act. It is to say, I am committed toward making that person the most important priority in my life and I will act in that way. So you understand when Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? This is not the time to ask. A week ago would have been the time to ask. And Peter would have said, oh yeah, I mean, I love you so much. Everybody will betray you but me. When in fact, now that nobody has denied him but Peter, now's not the time to be saying, do you love me? Because in Peter's mind, he has to be thinking, I don't know, because I thought I did, but then I just went and did something I didn't think I was capable of doing. I wish you wouldn't ask, but Jesus will not put the question down. Well, the question started to get under my skin, you guys, because it occurred to me that Jesus is not asking Peter, he's asking us. What he wants to know from us is, do you love me? I know you serve me. I know you believe in me. You worship me. But do you love me? And how would you know? Better yet, how would I know? What, beyond your words, could I point to as evidence that you love me? When you do that, 
I know you love me. Because you see, we worship every seven days. It's like we say it. But I'm wondering what do we do in between worship services only for love? Question bothered me, bothers me still. So much is said about how much God loves us. And that's half the formula. The other half, how much do we love him? Still lingers. Do you love me? Really? So I went looking through the New Testament for what people were doing when they were said to love him. For instance, Jesus said, if you love me, obey me. Now you can obey him without loving him, but you can't love him without obeying him. So whenever Jesus tells us to do something and we do it simply out of trust before we know what's going to happen, Oswald Chambers says, we have nothing to do with the afterwards of obedience. We don't obey because we weigh the pros and cons. We obey because we know he told us to do it. There is no other reason. There is no other outcome. That's it. Obedience. Whenever we serve other people or love other people with acts of kindness, it's proof that we love him. John says, we know we've passed from death to life because we love one another. In fact, listen to what John says. If a person says, I love God, but does not love his brother, how can he say he loves God? John says, how can we say we love God? We have not seen, if we cannot love our brother whom we have seen. So <laughs> this gets practical, does it not? So anytime we serve one another and help one another in the name of Jesus, only for that, it's a form of love. Say, I have no reason to do this, except that I love you. And I believe you are present in that person. So I'm going to do this without announcing it. I'm just going to quietly do it. I hope you, I hope you can see it's because I love you. Whenever we give an elaborate gift to Jesus, it can be an act of love. The night the lady poured the alabaster jar of perfume onto his feet, the fragrance filled the room. That was about a year's worth of salary poured out on his feet. In Luke 7, Jesus says she did this because she loved much. Now you can give gifts without loving, but you cannot love without sacrificing. So what it might take is for us to do these things that we might do anyway with a different mind. We might say, I'm doing this one just out of love for you. That's a mental, conscious, deliberate, and intentional decision. I'm going to do this, Jesus, because I love you.
in this meal, this breakfast that Jesus is serving, the way that he says we can love him is to shepherd somebody. That's the third thing that's changing in this meal. I didn't catch it. Peter's occupation is changing. Now he's no longer a fisherman, he's a shepherd. Now he's no longer just trying to grow himself. He's actually trying to take care of somebody else. And so one of the ways that we can prove to Christ that we love him is to take responsibility for somebody else's spiritual growth. This is a big step for some of us because we're all used to trying to be the best Christians we can be, but something changes when you say, you know what? I'm going to identify just a handful of people that I think weight my words differently, and I'm going to start investing intentionally in their lives for the purpose of making them grow spiritually. It, it, I mean, it's possible that we reach a stage in our spiritual growth where we can't grow anymore until we take somebody with us. We have to take somebody with us. And so here at the breakfast, what Jesus is saying to Peter is, if you love me, feed them. Take care of them, not you. Them. Think about them. What would this look like? Well, as I said, most of us have jobs. Most of us have a circle of people that we move in and out regularly all the time. But we're often thinking only about our jobs. We do not move into our workplace tomorrow and think laterally. Most of us don't think about who is around us right now that we could take responsibility for their growth. What if we did that? What if you just said, I'm going to identify four or five people that I work with or that I meet almost every week, people that are in and out of my life, and I'm going to ask myself, how are they doing spiritually? And what could I do to develop that person the way that other people have been developing me? How do I worry about their growth more than my own? And as a side benefit, we may find that we've proven to Jesus that we love him.